Hello, and welcome to another episode of AgTech So What, brought to you by Tenacious Ventures. I'm your host, Sarah Nolet. We've been thinking a lot about protein lately, and one question has been bothering me in particular. Who decided which proteins were alternative? And why is there such a sharp line between animal protein and non-animal protein? Protein, at the end of the day, is, well, protein. To satisfy our curiosity, we decided to reach out to some leaders at Standard Meat, a company that's been innovating in protein for decades to chat about processing and selling meat, the future of plant-based protein, and challenging the idea that those two are mutually exclusive. Standard Meat is a fourth-generation family-owned business, and though siblings Ashley Blumenfeld and Ben Rosenthal stepped into their co-president roles about five years ago, they grew up around the business. But both explored other careers, one in fashion, one in finance, before returning to the Fort Worth area. They both spent time learning the business before tackling leadership, and there was a lot to learn but I'll let Ben and Ashley jump in here to explain. Quick overview, we have four production facilities today that are all in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Our focus is on protein portioning and packaging. We do beef, chicken, pork. We have an ice production operation. We also, one of the four facilities Ben was referring to, we acquired a sausage and meatball operation a little over a year ago now. So we've been able to add that in some of those are cooked and some of them are raw, but just a nice addition or a complement to the whole muscle portioning that we've been doing historically. And also it was really 2020, we launched into some cooking platforms, which was great timing, right? It was like, I think January of 2020, we launched this nice big sous vide line and it was like February, 2020, we launched this really cool cast iron cooking platform and then COVID hit. I was like, awesome. This is great. But it was a wonderful add-on to the capabilities we already offered. It just allowed us to go out and talk to customers with different types of back-of-house capabilities where we had been constrained to groups that can cook themselves fully from raw. And so a little bit less specialized, still very value add, but really you couldn't put as much creativity into those products if it wasn't meat science related or tenderness or aging or whatever it may be. Now we have the ability to really bring a, a totally different culinarian aspect to the work that we do. Food service is still one of our primary categories that we sell to mostly large multi-unit chains. And then within the food service category, it's pretty broken out by We've got casual dining customers. We've got fast casual customers. We've got quick service customers. So you sort of run the gamut on the food service side. And then we've also were a very early supporter of the meal kit space as it grew in the United States. We found that a lot of our competitors, for whatever reason, didn't want to touch it. I don't know if it was just this feeling that the process was somewhat inefficient because we are usually packing in bulk and now we're packing in these smaller pack sizes, but we were very comfortable investigating it and being early adopters. And now we're the largest supplier to the milk kit industry space and the largest protein supplier in the U.S. And how did you guys have to change to be able to meet that like per box packing or other requirements that they would have? Were there changes in how you guys operate, think about, procure? What did that look like? One of the biggest challenges at first was just simply throughput. Like how do you get 
as many pounds through the plant as we could now versus a three or a five pound pack. We're now packing eight ounce small packs with a label on them. So we had to upgrade. We had to change our packaging machines and we had never really been one to apply labels because we don't do a lot of retail business. And in a way we were becoming a co-packer, but just of a meal kit company's product. Right. And so we're still B2B. We still are the brand behind the brand, if you will, but now it was for a very specific industry. And the early challenges that we faced alongside our partners in the meal kit space was in the U.S., they're shipping product to such great distances that it was really easy for these small packs to get leakers. And so our team worked really closely with our partners to change the type of film we were using, change the way we freeze the product, change the way they pack it, uh, on their lines and their distribution centers. So there was like a lot of early collaboration, which got us to virtually were leaker free when they get to our partner's docs, which we're really mm -hmm. proud of that innovation work. I love that example because at the time, I imagine it wasn't obvious that meal kits would even work or be a thing. There was That's skepticism. Right. Some of them were venture back. They were startups. This was a new right. area. How did you guys gain confidence to make what sounds like some decently large changes in betting on that industry? What were the conversations like internally? How did you build conviction? The juice was worth the squeeze, I guess. Sarah, to, to add some background, we'll admit that the first time we heard about meal kits, there was a guy in Fort Worth that approached us and said, hey, have you ever heard of this meal kit concept? And we had no idea what he was talking about. And, and candidly, at first, we thought this sounds pretty similar to the e-commerce grocery delivery business that had really failed in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so we were definitely skeptical very early on, but as we started to better understand it, we realized that the meal kit flew apron really at first was really going after the meal kit space in a different way than the online grocers. This wasn't to deliver groceries necessarily. This was to deliver the entire package to consumers that frankly just didn't have time to cook, but still had a passion for food, which obviously we care about. And so as we started to have those discussions with those early innovators on the meal kit space, we felt like those interests matched up with ours. And so we felt like it was a, a space worth taking a bet on. And we did, we invested in our first small packaging line and started to grow with a customer and the rest grew from there. And again, as Ashley mentioned, it was just interesting because no one else wanted to take that plunge with us alongside us. We were us. like surprised by that. But I will add too that we tend to push the risk boundaries a little bit more than a lot of other companies. Like we're are sort of wired that way as a business that the generations before us were the same way. It's just by pushing those boundaries and being a little more willing to take risk and be up against potential failure, I think it keeps us on the edge of evolution. Otherwise, I think we be, have been around for four generations. So I think it's partly in our DNA to yeah. try things that other people are not excited about. I'd love to hear another example. What I particularly like about this one, though, is that it's not even just efficiency or cost-driven, which is an easier potentially area to argue for innovations. But this was like a skate to where the puck is going. What might this look like? And still required investment, at least as I understand it. But what's another example, an innovation initiative that you're proud of? So a few years ago, so a lot of similar customer, so Meal Kits, one of our big customers came to us and said, 
look, we're really starting to struggle to find ice packs. And th these are the big ice packs that go in the boxes for online delivery. And, uh, and they asked us if we would help explore it. And really it started as something where they really just wanted us to look at, can you put water in a bag and then sell it to us and we'll find a freezer and we'll go freeze it from there, which doesn't have a very big footprint and is actually pretty simple. And so we did start to explore that. And really, as we started to explore that, we said, hey, this is a really inefficient process. The way the traditional ice business works is you fill a bag with water. So it's a vertical form fill and seal machine. And then you put it in a box and then you take those cases and you put them on a pallet and you put it in a freezer. And it takes about two to three weeks to get through the whole process. That two weeks to freeze the product in a traditional freezer. And one thing that we started to say to ourselves is we know that there's spiral freezers that are a lot faster than that. And so we started to say, hey, does the spiral system make sense? As we explored that, we found some technology that is a submersion spiral system. So it actually submerges these bags into water that's, it's a brine solution that's minus 40 degrees. And so it would freeze an ice pack in 40 minutes instead of two weeks. So it's literally 2000 times faster or something like that than the traditional process. And so we just thought that was pretty interesting. And so as we started to discuss that idea with our customer, we got more excited, they got more excited, and we ended up setting up that business. And the next best part of this idea was we said, hey, what if we set it up right next to one of your fulfillment centers? And so that way we're also taking the inefficiencies of trucking literally water around the country. And so we did that. So we built a facility, it's next door to our customer, we call it ice on demand, incredibly efficient, fewer trucks on the road, and it's working great. So that's been an incredibly fun one. We did have to challenge ourselves and say, does this go with our protein business? And we ultimately said it does because we're solving a problem for a customer that is selling protein that we're providing the protein for them. It was a little bit out there, but it's been really fun, like I said. That does sound like a lot of fun. I imagine for food service, there'd be areas that are pretty commoditized. And then there'd be areas where companies are actually really trying to differentiate based on their footprint or their packaging or their supplier quality or whatever it might be. And yet you guys have to balance how much do you do with one partner versus needing to amortize the cost over potentially multiple customers. A, is that true? And B, if so, how do you think about deepening a relationship with a particular partner, but not doing too many sort of custom or proprietary things? One of the things that's very unique about us is that all the products that we make are fully custom. So we don't have anything off the shelf, right? So for us, I think one of our greatest dif differentiators is just that we're not trying to sell you something you don't necessarily need. What we really are is a partner that's trying to understand your biggest challenges or your biggest needs and then help you come up with the right solution for whatever it may be. And so I think that tends to be one of our greater differentiators and it can mean so many things, right? Because sometimes it's as simple as helping you with menu development and helping you figure out multiple ways to use one SKU that may come from us, right? So sometimes it's really about like exactly how it's going to work back house for you as a customer. Sometimes it's how can we create a product that you need more efficiently, what you were saying, and then that might cause us to review 
either our processing system or maybe how it's been done historically somewhere else and then try to get creative and think of new ways to do it. And a lot of times that's not even reinventing the wheel totally. It's just perhaps taking a piece of technology or equipment and pairing it up with other equipment in a different way that may just make the throughput more efficient or requires less labor or is more automated, but still delivers the utmost quality. And really none of the products that we are heavily invested in are really what I would call commodity products, right? Like they start with a commodity in the protein, but really everything that we do has a pretty serious element of value add. And that also has a bunch of different meanings depending on what the finished good is. I think that is where we've been able to continue to stay successful and keep evolving is that it's not just about how to shave a couple pennies off the finished goods price because we are sort of in a land of our own, right? Where it's really, as long as the pricing works really well for our customer and they can afford to make the profit that they need, then we have obviously have to make sure we're going to be successful. So Mm -hmm. it's really just, we found that the more we partner with people like us that value similar things and have a really transparent partner-like collaboration, then it's just wonderful because we're not playing that negotiation game. To add to that is we really aren't scared of concentration risk. Oh yes. Good point. That's, that is something actually that I think does differentiate us too. We love that at the end of the day, if, if our values line up, like Ashley said, then in the end, we trust our partners and we trust that we may be concentrated for a while, but over time, time just solves for that. We'll have our next customer, our next opportunity, and it works itself out. You mentioned culture and values and things. Does that sort of play into being a family business? And it's a unique structure to have co-presidents as well. And and siblings, how would you describe the culture? And how, how do you think about family values and business values and embodying that in customers and partners? Not necessarily an easy needle to thread. No, it's not. And you want to start with that one? First of all, Ashley and I are, it is, it's fun that we get to work together as siblings. And I think we sometimes can almost complete each other's sentences and that can be good and bad. We, we know what each other are thinking. A lot of times we joke that we, <laughs> at times that means that we may think we're just having a normal conversation and someone new may walk through the door and say, oh my gosh, what is happening between Ashley and Ben? And we're like, oh no, that's us. That's us just talking. We're just talking because we can work through things really, really quickly. We don't mind confronting each other. We don't mind saying, hey, I disagree with you on that. We can cut to the chase pretty quickly. So that is is an interesting dynamic, but we actually think it works really well. As a family, I'd say similarly, we feel like it's a huge blessing to be able to be a family business. For one, We really think that our company is a family culture. I think that everyone that comes in and works for us, everyone that starts a standard meat company, our hope is they want to work here forever. Once you're in, our objective is that you're happy and you never want to leave. Just like in a family, you're stuck with the good and the bad. And I'd say that's our DNA. That's how it really works every day. And I think there's a level of comfort that comes with being a family business too, where A lot of our people have been around for a long time. And so they're not afraid to tell Ashley and I, we think you're wrong or we're hundred percent behind you and we trust each other like a family. And it's really neat. And I 
we'll say this, we really saw the value of that culture, I'd say during COVID, for me, I have a better appreciation for what it means to be a family business versus just a business or a company, because we were able to be incredibly nimble. We really had no choice, right? But to be flexible in how we think and who we were going after and what products we were going to sell and how we were going to do it. And I think that if we'd had the layers that you have when it's not a family business, I think we would have lost some opportunities that we were able to instead really capitalize on, I'd say, over that period. And that's continued to reap some benefits for us in the last couple of years. I think customers got to see the real value of that, mm-hmm. of our willingness to, to think differently. And so it's, it's different at times, but it's really good. I'd love an example of that if you have one better one you can share, whether that's in something you were able to take a longer term perspective on or meet someone where they were. I imagine there's lots of ways those values could play out or did during COVID. I think in terms of meeting them where they are, a really simple example is just that a lot of our customers, frankly, said, hey, we need to throw out some of the traditional rules that we've had around a spec, like so simple stuff, Sarah, around like a spec on aging what do y'all know? What can y'all do? And that's where we were able to very quickly work with them and make changes and also tap into some of the resources that we have at places like Texas A&M to quickly change. Hey, we think that 20 days is okay or whatever it might be. Can I give you one other little fun example from COVID? Please. Because so we was that first couple of months, especially like April was a very interesting month of 2020 because the restaurant business shut down. The delivery was not there yet. And so we found ourselves with some extra capacity. And at the same time, our meal kit partners, their volumes were through the roof and they couldn't even supply what they needed to supply. So we actually said, we have these amazing employees that we really don't want to not give work to. Why don't we pack boxes for you? So we turned our dock until an operation where we could pack meal kit boxes for our partners. It obviously used our protein, but it had a bunch of other ingredients going into the box too. And we basically became a fulfillment center for them for about two or three weeks. And that was a pretty fun, just trust building partner building experience. But then also it was really special to our employees to make sure that we were able to not let go of anybody. You mentioned Texas A&M. I know you guys have made a little bit of investments in startups. Do you have a broader innovation strategy? Have you defined the kinds of tools in the toolkit or is it more find those value aligned partners and be customer driven? Tell me a little bit about the set of tools in the toolkit and how you think about other types of partnerships, not just customers. For us, there's experts all around us that don't work for Standard Meat Company. And the way we view it is why would we not go collaborate with those different groups, whoever it might be. And Texas A&M, as an example, is a group that we've been very close to literally for generations. Ashley and I's grandfather helped establish the meat science department down at Texas A&M and some of the programming that, that still exists down there. And for us, it's been because of that, we're just incredibly close with the group down there, very close with the professors. And we get to learn so much by talking to students down there or professors that view the world very differently than we're going to when we get stuck in a plant um, or get stuck talking to customers. So they'll bring ideas to us that we just hadn't even thought about, or they'll run studies for us that frankly, we don't have the ability to do in a food facility. So A&M has been very interesting 
on the business side of collaborations, similarly nowadays, nowadays is an alt protein company that we got introduced to. And as we started to talk to them, we realized these guys know so much about the space that it would take us years to get even close to understanding what they already know. And so what we ended up deciding to do was to invest alongside them in nowadays and frankly, to learn from them rather than us starting from scratch and trying to learn that space by ourselves. And that's been great. And I think for us too, when we decided to go in with them and, and partner with them, we said, but we also want to be able to give something to you. We don't want to just invest and then sit back. And so what we said is, look, we've got manufacturing capabilities and we have an understanding of manufacturing. So let us be your go-to if you have questions on how to manufacture products or what are best practices or anything that we can do to help with you on that side of the world. And I think that's worked pretty well as a two-way partnership. How do you kind of see the plant-based protein category or alternative protein category? Do you think about it as an opportunity, a threat? You can ask these days or five years ago and you might get different answers, but how are you guys thinking about that space and the kinds of partners that are emerging and evolving? I think we're very careful to not look at something that's going to change our industry as a threat, right? I think that at the end of the day, what we produce today is pretty much 100% all driven around animal proteins, but the reality is we're a protein manufacturer, right? So if that means that down the road here in a bit, we're creating something out of pea protein, then that still fits, you know, what we do, right? So I think that for us, it's really about paying attention to the consumer and how our partners, the eating experiences they want to create for their final consumers. And I think that what we're seeing is the spike was really dramatic during COVID because there were a ton of different reasons that caused that, but I don't think the growth will be quite as crazy as we once thought it would be. However, I still think that the growth is going to continue. And I think that there's going to be so many different types of consumers eating alternative proteins. There's going to be the vegans and the vegetarians that already have been consuming for years. And then there's going to be people like us that really see it as almost like a flexitarian type of movement where we know we shouldn't eat as much red meat, or maybe we're going to change our portion size slightly. And we're only going to do three ounces of beef a day. And we may want to add in some other type of protein throughout the day, like a nowadays product or something like that. So I think that for us, we're not afraid of it. I think we'll figure out what our place is at some point. I don't think we know yet really exactly where we're going to live, but there's so many different connections that we've been able to explore different parts of what the industry may look like. But like Ben was saying, the nowadays experience has been so wonderful because, you know, it's some really smart people with some really extensive knowledge around a particular product. And it has been a lot of fun trying to help them, just having them walk through our facilities and talk to our equipment engineers and talk to our culinarians and everything. So I think it's here to stay and I think it will grow, but I don't think the alt protein is going to take over the whole world. That would be our view for sure. Despite having invested in it in a couple of ways, we think there'll be all kinds of protein. And even someone was challenging me last week on the word alternative, like that is a either or word and it's catchy yeah. and now it's the term, but like complimentary or, you know, we're starting to see interesting opportunities too for like blended products. I'd be curious yes. as a manufacturer, again, it's, it seems to be either or there'd be challenges with 
allergens or lines and how you're branding them. And I'm sure it's not easy, but do you guys actually see the products themselves blurring? I mean, meatball isn't only meat, right? How do you see that evolving? We spent a lot of time playing in that space, like just in the R&D department, because that is something that is more tangible to us, right? Because that is actually taking our proteins, which we obviously have residual pieces from a steak cutting process, for example, that if you were to blend them well with like mushrooms and herbs and whatnot, it's like you said, exactly the same as making a sausage or a meatball. It's just changing the percentage of actual protein in the formula. And there's some really tasty options out there. And I think that opportunities in that space are endless. And there's going to be a lot of really cool innovation that gives us that eating experience. The only other thing I would add overall about our business and how we don't view alternative or complementary proteins as a threat, we're pretty intentionally not tied to raw material sources which we believe is also something that helps us really meet the needs of our customers because we get to be pretty flexible and offer them whatever it is that they may be interested in, whether that's importing beef from Australia and New Zealand versus using domestic beef or similarly with chicken, just not being tied to a certain raw material source is something that we think is important. And it, again, it says to our customers, hey, we're not there just pushing our own agenda on them. We're really trying to help solve their needs because we can be flexible. Um, And I think alternative or complementary protein plays in the same way. At the end of the day, we want to be there for our customers and we want to be flexible and we don't want to be scared of what the end consumer ultimately wants. We want to actually be there providing those products for that end consumer. What are some of the challenges or concerns that either suppliers or customers are coming with today or that you think are coming down the pipeline, whether that's around sustainability or different technologies? What's sort of ahead that you're going to need to use that innovation toolkit to help you solve? There's some of the ones that we've all been talking a lot about, just the labor challenges back at house for our customers. You know, the turnover is so enormous that training becomes such a burden. So it's like ways that we can provide product that is incredibly simple and easy to execute. And just any way we can help our partners cut down the complexity back a house, which is, that's an excellent trend for us, right? Because that's basically what we do. And so it's not super new for us, but it's how do we take that to some partners that have never really thought that way before and help them see how they can do so much more with so much less. I think we're also seeing a lot of restaurants looking at their business differently, right? I think COVID showed us how important that delivery piece is and how important protecting the eating experience from restaurant through third-party delivery to the house. And it's how can we help them execute that better? I think that's huge. And then also the restaurant chains are up against all kinds of inflation and supply chain pressure that they maybe are looking for support outside of themselves in new ways. And sometimes that's the creativity. It's the culinary arm. It could be a food safety quality assurance side of our business or just anywhere that they can lean on us. I think they're looking for that partnership in a new way than they were before, which just adds to that actual feeling of being partners, which I think is really good for us at Standard Meat because it's such a big part of our culture. 
one of the things we're seeing in the broader kind of agri-food space and with CBG companies especially is setting science-based targets and thinking about scope three emissions. Obviously, as a private company, you've got different pressures and requirements, but also opportunities. How are you thinking about sustainability, scope three emissions? Is that something that's top of mind and any hints about what might be ahead in that space? Like a lot of others, we're early. We're trying to figure it out. Like, what is it ultimately going to mean? But that is something where it's on the front of the minds of our customers. And so we are talking with our customers and trying to make sure that we're an extension of their own goals and their own needs. And uh, those conversations are happening now with all of our customers, I would say. And that's been a huge shift literally in the last I want to say almost six months. I could say it's maybe a year, but I bet it's really just in the last six months. And we're trying to figure it out. But again, really partnering with our customers on what is the right way for us to view it and make sure that we're getting on the same platforms that they are, that they want us to be on so that we're appropriately collecting information that they want to see. It's going to be interesting. Our partners are telling us what they need and like what parts of sustainability are important to them. And then we're able to lean on a lot of our partners to help figure out ways that they can achieve what they need. And that's partly because of where we are in the value chain. It's us being able to lean on our packaging suppliers and be able to lean on our subprimal suppliers or whomever it may be. And as they worry more and think more about animal welfare, it's like, how can we also push our partners to be moving forward? And we've already done a lot of that with some of our partners that were earlier adopters of how they can do more for sustainability. And so that is where our suppliers become as much partners as as our customers are, because it's really clear the ones that want to step up and try to help you figure it out. And the ones that are kind of like, we'll figure that out when we have to. So there's been a lot of people that have really stepped up and made a big difference already. Sarah, we've already seen some groups that have made claims or made decisions a little bit I'll call it too quickly. And then there's promises that they can't keep. And that's a mess. And that's another area where we are able to at least try to share some of those experiences or stories with other customers and say, hey, here are some things not to do. And that's helpful. I want to loop all the way back to the beginning of the conversation and maybe get a lesson, Ben, from the finance world, completely outside of food and ag. What have you applied to Standard Meat? And Ashley, same for you from fashion. I just think it's so important to be bringing in those different perspectives and different experiences. Um, would love an example of how that's played out for you. From the finance world, I, I would say there's lots of little examples every day, but I think biggest examples is that Ash and I joke sometimes because Dad is almost easygoing in some respects. And one of those areas is on the financial side. It's just kind of like, eh, it'll all work itself out. We trust the customer. It's going to be fine. And I would say one thing that I've tried to bring into Standard Meat Company is just a little bit more discipline around that from a financial standpoint of, hey, let's, let's at least analyze this and just make sure we're not being crazy. And I would say that then ultimately does help our customers too, because if it's a product that we're going into, it creates confidence in those early conversations with our customers that, hey, this really can work because otherwise, as you can imagine, we may get six months into a project and then all of a sudden we throw up our hands and we say, oh my gosh, this isn't going to work. Like this is too much money and it doesn't work with your price. So 
that's probably the biggest thing is just early on trying to bring some financial discipline into the business. But also like Ben, like the level of sophistication you were able to bring, like how to look at numbers in a way that no one knew how to do that at Tanner prior to that. So he's brought in so much thoughtfulness to how we do things. Thank you for that. And I do, I will add one other note there is that one thing that we do now that we did not do in the past is we try to be very open with our team around the financial side of the business and share a lot of information. And I think for us, going back to that family culture of really feeling a part of something, that's been it's been great for us in terms of just coming together. It's really helped us come together and it's and it makes it selfishly more fun for me because we can talk about whatever it is that we may be looking at and people before that would have maybe been intimidated by the financial side of the business actually have an opinion. So yeah. that's been good. All right. So the fashion <laughs> side, a little bit harder to even guess. So I would say that one of the things I found incredibly fascinating when I first started to work into food and I was fresh off of this fashion PR role in New York was how quickly food trends change and the way that really just trends in general affect all of our tastes and wants and how we go about our lives in the world and the pattern and the way that trends go from top to bottom is really the exact same sort of pattern as the fashion world follows as well, right? There's like the looking at fine dining and then figuring out how to bring that trend down to something that's a little bit more tangible to somebody that's buying food at a at a fast casual restaurant or a QSR concept. And the same thing happened at fashion. So it was like when I could come in and just start looking at food differently and thinking about how you apply something really fancy like even just the concept of sous vide, but knowing that at certain points in time, it's not even appropriate to use that word, that it's, there's a trend that can be fully digestible by somebody that doesn't understand something like French sous vide cooking and what that might mean at a white tablecloth concept, but they can now get this like really incredible, fully cooked, huge, thick burger patty that actually came in ready to eat sous vide and was just reheated for the caramelization effect. And so it's just figure out ways to translate trends, I think, and really pay attention to how people are living. Uh, because prior to that, I don't think we ever really looked at food, at least at Santa Meat, as how do we really present products to each customer in a way that they can see it immediately on their menus. It was more, let me just show you a good steak. And here's a plastic fork and let's cut it and just try it together. And now it was more like we're able to come in and we present the product in a way that you can see it on your menu. So it's a steak with all the sides and a full build and maybe a glaze and a topical and whatever that might look like. And I think it's just, it's brought the level of collaboration and discussion up to a whole nother level between the in-house chefs and our meat scientists and their commercialization team. So it's just been a fun, tweak to just a generic meat business. There were so many interesting nuggets in my conversation with Ben and Ashley today. First, I loved getting to hear more about how they decided pretty early to partner with meal kits. I can see how intentional they were in understanding the product and how it could be meaningfully distinguished from the earlier versions of grocery delivery. Even more interesting though, was hearing about the ways they were able to work closely with meal kit customers to provide really innovative services like leak-free packaging and custom ice packs. These are the kinds of opportunities that I think traditional companies can overlook when they consider working or partnering with startups. 
a more cynical, reactive organization might have looked at the ICE request and dismissed it as an over-needy customer asking them to experiment with a non-core competency. But the standard meat team saw it as a fascinating challenge they wanted to explore, and their curiosity and appetite for risk paid off. Another insight that impressed me was how open Ben and Ashley were in unpacking the company's investment in nowadays, which I'll note is a Tenacious Ventures portfolio company as well. The investment for them wasn't just a hedge bet, it was the opening of a two-way information-sharing relationship. I admire a meat company that not only has an interest in alternative proteins, but that's also eager to learn and stay informed on the space's cutting edge. And not just for the financial benefits, but also to make sure they could learn from organizations in the extended world of protein and share their knowledge too. And all this brought me back to thinking about the idea of complementary rather than alternative proteins. We've talked before on the podcast about there being plenty of space on tables and plates for both animal and non-animal protein. But I think we haven't talked enough about the potential of blended protein products and what those kinds of dietary stepping stones could mean for consumer interest, food waste reduction, sustainability, and even product margins. In a lot of ways, our current concept of protein is terribly limited. You can have bean or meat burgers, seitan or chicken tenders, fish or tofu fillets. Why not a beef and tofu dumpling or a chicken and mushroom meatball? Why isn't the food sector talking more about ways to solve for environmental and health demands with complementary ingredients rather than eschewing meat altogether? I'm excited to see what might be on the horizon as more companies like Standard Meat innovate in that space. We wanted to mention as well that after we recorded this episode, the alternative protein company nowadays has ceased operations. There's a lot to unpack there in terms of their insights and our insights and lessons learned, so keep your eyes peeled for more from us in the coming weeks. So that's it for another episode of Ag Tech So What? Thanks again to Ashley Blumenfeld and Ben Rosenthal for joining us, and of course, thank you for listening. For more information on any of the resources mentioned in this podcast, please visit our website, tenacious.ventures. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.